0: And that was when I began trying to write stories for magazines. It was how I began, while a sailor on ships at sea, to write, it would turn out some part of every day, seven days a week, for the next eight years, collecting in time hundreds of rejection slips before finally I was selling things to small magazines and then to some others. I stayed on in the service until I was 37 years of age, when I had 20 years, and then I retired. I went to New York, I went to Greenwich Village, rented a room in a basement, and there I began to have a very rough time trying to make it as a full-time freelance writer. It would come to be in time, however, I began to get assignments from the Reader's Digest on a fairly regular basis, and I would do biographical articles for them, and then in a big switch, I went over from the Reader's Digest to Playboy, where I happened to begin The feature called the Playboy Interviews. The first of them would interest you probably to know was when I was given an assignment to do an article about the great genius jazz trumpeter Miles Davis. And I was having a great deal of problem with that story. And the main reason for it was that Miles talked so little. One day I was talking with a friend of his, and it was brought out to me that Miles was as good a cook as he is a trumpet. And the thing came to pass that I just had a hard time getting him to say anything. To give you an example, if you were home and a friend of Miles, one afternoon, say around 6.30, your phone would ring. And you'd pick it up and say, hello. And a voice would come over and say, chili, and hang up. And (coughs) the translation of that was that Miles had cooked chili, and that you should come over that evening and have some. Like staying active or talking the third interview that i did for playboy i believe it was third or maybe the fourth was of malcolm x at a time when malcolm was just coming into major prominence in the national periodicals and newspapers when the interview of him appeared among its readers was a book publisher who asked Malcolm if he would be willing to tell his life in book-length detail. Malcolm was hesitant at first, but he finally agreed that he would. And then, because I believe Malcolm associated me as the black writer who probably was affiliated more with major national magazine stories, he asked me if I would be willing to work with him on this book. (laughs) I was pleased, honored, flattered to do so. And I would spend the next two years with Malcolm X, the first year interviewing him very exhaustively, the second year taking all that interview material, putting it out first in a very exacting chronology, breaking it up into what seemed to be logical chapter sections, and then studying each of those sections very intensively, and then writing vicariously first person as if I were he, a manuscript which hopefully would sound as if Malcolm had just sat down across a table and was trying to tell a reader his life as best he could recall it from earliest days. When the manuscript was finished, I went back down and worked with Malcolm. I was by now living upstate New York, and worked with him on a hotel. And he went across from first page to last, making this or that editing change with his favorite ballpoint pen, and at the bottom of each page putting his MX then he said to me, I don't think I'm going to live to read this in print. Malcolm proved to be very prophetic because it was less than two weeks later he was shot to death in the Audubon ballroom. And the following morning, after that, I sat down and began the most traumatic writing I have ever done in my life, calling forth as best I could reminiscings of having met and worked with this man, anecdotes and insights into him, put together in some kind of tumbling chronology. And that is that part which now appears at the end of that book called the epilogue. And the autobiography of Malcolm X was concluded and on its way into print. At that time, I had stepped into a period that most writers of books are familiar with. It's said that writing a book is like having a baby. And I think it's not a bad analogy. Something you've been very, very close with. You have indeed internalized. And all of a sudden, it's gone. And you, the writer, feel a void, a vacuum, and you don't quite know what to do with yourself. And it was in that situation now that a magazine gave me an assignment that took me to Washington, D.C. And I had interviewed someone a Saturday morning, and then the afternoon came and I had nothing particular to do. And I was down in an area of that city near the National Archives. I had never been in the building. I knew, of course, that it symbolized history, And I don't know what, but just some impulse sent me up those steep stairs. And I got into the lobby area, looked around, walked around, looking at the displays they have all the time of historical documents of one or another nature under glass there in the lobby. And then I went on up in the service area. And a young man came up to me at a desk and asked if he could help me. And it kind of startled me because I really hadn't been expecting him to walk over there And when he asked me, I wasn't about to tell him what I really had had kind of kicking around in my head for a while. I wasn't going to say to him, I'm kind of curious about some slaves I've heard about from my grandmother when I was a boy. I said to him instead, I wonder if I might see the census record for Alamance County in North Carolina in the year 1870. And he said that I could. Now, the reason I ask about that specific record was because it was the first census following the Civil War, and I knew that it was the first census in which black people had been listed by their names. Previous to this time, black people had been recorded in something called the slave schedule. The top of it would contain the name of their master, and then if he, say, for instance, of talk had five slaves, there would be five X's in a vertical line, and to the right of each X, age, and so forth They would describe that slave but no name was given anyway the young man said i could see these records in microfilm and i went on up in the microfilm room the records were delivered in the little cardboard boxes that they deliver this in and i began creating microfilm into a machine looking through the scope and i'm looking down upon rows of lines of names after names after names of people long gone. There was a name, there was age, and some little identifying thing about them, and as I would turn the handle, it seemed to me almost mystic. These names in the handwriting of a census enumerator, 1870, where the F's look like S's and so that old-fashioned handwriting, which we've all seen, you have to kind of accustom yourself to reading it. It began to dawn on me that each of these lines was somebody, some human being, who had lived out a life. Some of them, you could see by their birth age, they had lived long lives. Some had lived short lives, one thing or another. Sometimes you saw where children, little children, had passed away in the course of a record, things like that. And what got to me was the feeling that I turned the handle slowly they went in slow stately tread. if i turned the handle more rapidly they seemed to sprint along and the thing just intrigued me and i kept on doing it and after i'd say about an hour intriguing though it was it had just gotten monotonous and i decided i would just get up and leave go on out and thus i got up and started out of the archives to this day it gives me the quivers to reflect upon how easily I might have gone on out of that National Archives building and gotten back out on the sidewalk, and I'm sure if I had, I would never have given it another thought. But what happened, again I think one of these meant-to-be things, was that in leaving I happened to take a route that took me through a room where they do genealogical reading. And as I walked through this room, I had been in many libraries in my life. I caught my peripheral vision, caught something I'd never seen before. You know, we've all been in libraries lots, and you know how people in libraries loll back. We're trying to be comfortable as much as at ease as we can as we read whatever we have. But what I picked up as I went through this room was that everybody in that room was bent raptly, intently, over the table, whatever they had, and they were studying with the most careful, intensive effort whatever they had. Some of those people had magnifying glasses in their hands and they were going line by line poring over this copy. And I could see that the documents they had were old things. They were letters, they were ledgers, they were scrolls, things of this nature. And somehow a thought just came to me Rather, as a bubble might rise in a glass of water. And it was these people are trying to find out who they are. And with that, I just kind of turned around and went back up into the microfilm room where I had been to start with. And the thing then was that the people hadn't moved my materials and I began to thread them into the machine and turned the handle again and looked and I guess I had gone about another hour when I suddenly found myself looking down upon Tom Murray, blacksmith, under a column headed color B for black, his age. Right beneath his name was Irene, his wife, M for mulatto, and then her age. And then there were their children, their oldest children. And I found myself recognizing names I'd heard about long time ago, but it didn't seem really to focus and hit on me until I got to the youngest of those children was one whose name was Elizabeth, and she was age six on this record at this time. And it suddenly dawned on me, for God's sakes, that's Aunt Liz. I used to play with her long gray hair on grandma's front porch. And the thing just galvanized me to realize what I was looking at. And what really got to me when I got to thinking about it was these are grandma's words, these are grandma's stories. And it wasn't that I had not believed my grandma, cause you didn't not believe my grandma. But, <laughs> but the point was that there were the stories she had told in the National Archives on microfilm in official United States records, housed in the same building that that kept the original Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and so forth. And the thing was something that just made me start taking notes, very brief notes, of what the records were, which role of microfilm, where it was to be found on that role, and I made my way on back to New York, And the more I thought about that thing, the more my mind went back to where I had first heard all this from grandma and from all those old great aunts on the front porch in Henning. And now that I began to think of them, I began to realize what I had known all the time, but never in a collective way, that with a single exception, all but one were dead. The only one that survived, the last survivor of those old ladies, was one whom we used to call Cousin Georgia. What I particularly remembered about Cousin Georgia was that she was the youngest among them. She was about 20 odd years my grandmother's junior. And I remembered also that Cousin Georgia was the one whose mouth ran like a trap hammer. You could hardly believe the way that lady talked. But they would never really let her get loose. They would always drown her out. They would say something collectively like, now you just be quiet because we know the story better than you, and we'll tell it, and you listen. And she would get sputtering with indignation. Now, however, she was the only one left, and I knew that she was still alive. I'd heard this, and in my family, as in most families, there is somebody who knows where every cousin is. In my family, it's my immediate younger brother, George, and I called him. And he said, "Yes, she's in Kansas City on Everett Avenue." And so I had this driving compulsion to see cousin Georgia, and I got on a plane, and I flew to Kansas City, and I never will forget the most moving experience it was that after the initial huggings and the kissings and the boy, you done growed up good. The minute, the minute that I told cousin Georgia spoke to her about the story. Ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> we're going to stop right there, and we're going to pick up in part three. I think it's four, right?